This is Sovereign Debt, a podcast on greening the global economy and debt sustainability. I'm your host, Jill Doshi. Hello, everyone, and belated Happy New Year. I'm kicking off the 2023 season with something a bit different. I was asked the other day to give a keynote address at the United Nations as part of their process for developing the Financing for Sustainable Development Report. And following that event, I realized it was a nice way to introduce the major themes facing us this year. We will resume our normal interview-style podcasts in February. And also, if you haven't found it yet, all of these recordings are now available on our website, potomac-group.com. Thanks. So your excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank all of you and especially our hosts and our sponsors for the invitation to give this address. It's an honor to be here and I observe all protocols. Many of you may not know me, but I have been an independent financial advisor to sovereign governments of emerging and frontier markets for over 25 years. I have sat alongside countless ministers of finance, both in good times when they are developing financing plans and accessing capital markets, as well as in more challenging times when they are experiencing distress and needing to negotiate with creditors. I'm 100% independent and these views are my own. I'm humbled by the importance of the retreat today and the tasks ahead of you. As you debate the contents of your Finance for Development report and make plans to move forward with purpose and relevance for today's development challenges, I believe it's also important to reflect on how we got here. So today I'd like to follow the following theme. At the beginning of the post-World War II era, the global community had a shared interest in financial stability and poverty reduction. We created institutions to help achieve these objectives including this complex UN system, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. And as time went on, and I will go into some detail, other norms and practices were developed as were financial markets and frameworks for handling crises and ensuring the dual mission of stability and prosperity. These efforts have been broadly successful. Today's world, despite the current challenges, is wealthier, more dynamic, and more interconnected than ever before. But our institutions need reform, and so to accomplish this effectively, we need to be as bold and as brave as our predecessors. So today my address is a bit in two parts. I want to take a walk down memory lane, and then we'll delve into today's challenges and what I think we need to do. So when global leaders gathered in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, they were operating in a very particular political economy. The challenge of the day was to rebuild the global economy, ensure stability of the system going forward, and reduce global poverty. It was the beginning of the nuclear age and the Cold War, and the end, importantly, of colonialism as independence movements were strengthening around the world. As these newly independent countries emerged, their development needs were immense. Financial markets were not sophisticated at the time, 
So lending was done either through official bilateral assistance, often linked to trade and in a very political context, and through commercial banks. In this way, the official bilateral and commercial lending were usually closely aligned. That had important consequences for when things went wrong, which they often did. In 1956, you have the establishment of the Paris Club for precisely these reasons. The major lenders of the day came together to coordinate debt relief. They had an effective veto on the IMF process through their shareholding, and they could effectively influence their commercial lenders and their commercial banks so that they would follow. This system continued smoothly until the Latin American crisis of the 1980s. It was then that the US government stepped in with the Brady Bond program, which to some extent was as much an effort to assist the lenders as it was to assist the borrowers. But by introducing US treasuries as part of the financing solution, as collateral to the new debt instruments, the US government inadvertently helped to create a new fixed income emerging market asset class denominated in US dollars. The Brady deals led to a whole ecosystem of research, trading, and eventual new debt issuance by Latin American countries. Africa, since it did not participate in the Brady program generally, did not benefit from these market developments. For their part, African countries continued to linger under the weight of their debt burdens, which were more heavily tilted to official bilateral and multilateral institutions. It was only after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the participation of the Russian Federation in the Paris Club that comprehensive debt relief was possible. By now, we are talking about the late 1990s and the dawn of the new millennium. There was, of course, the Asian financial crisis and new calls from civil society and even popular culture for debt relief. And all of this focused the minds of policymakers and eventually led to the implementation of the Highly Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, or HIPIC. But here's where I would say we get into the modern era of sovereign debt. So let's recap. At this time, we have by the first decade of the millennium, highly developed fixed income markets in Latin America and Asia, which means we have a set of institutional investors dedicated to emerging markets. We have African countries with clean balance sheets following comprehensive debt release under HIPIC, and they are not highly correlated to other emerging markets. We have persistently low global interest rates at the time, and we have traditional official bilateral development partners who have now pivoted away from debt instruments since HIPIC in favor of more increased grant assistance. We also have at this time an emergence of new official bilateral partners, such as China, India, Saudi Arabia, and others, who are looking to develop both political and commercial ties. Therefore, over the last 20 years, the landscape of sovereign debt has become much more complex, and even low-income countries have seen a steady accumulation, a reaccumulation of debt. 
The global financial crisis of 2008 originated, of course, in highly developed markets, but it has had a lasting effect on the entire global financial system. The increased regulation of commercial banks following the crisis has had an unintended consequence of reduced lending in riskier markets. We also see, following some of the more notable debt crises of Argentina and Greece, the introduction of new norms and practices, such as the collective action clauses, to try to facilitate sovereign debt restructurings. So you can see we have come a long way from Bretton Woods. One constant throughout history is the need for pools of capital, ideally concessional capital, to finance development. The other constant is that sometimes things go wrong. Whether endogenous or exogenous, shocks to the system occur, and countries and their lenders need to occasionally readjust. What has changed dramatically is the complexity of the system and the variety of lenders and debt instruments. Private bond markets are terrific sources of capital, but reliance on these markets is difficult as rates rise and debt needs to be refinanced. Borrowing in local currency is also not always easier. Domestic markets can be vulnerable to fast money of non-residents who come and go with risk-on or risk-off market swings. Islamic finance, commodity or resource-backed finance, collateral, all of these are valid, but they tend to complicate discussions amongst creditors when restructurings happen, simply because our existing frameworks are not built to accommodate them. The global community now faces a moment as serious as the end of World War II. The pandemic exposed the weaknesses and limits of our interconnected world. Even our development paradigm is being questioned as the effects of climate change and biodiversity loss are increasingly felt. How do we support development while also striving for global transition away from fossil fuels? Who will bear the cost of adaptation to climate change? How can countries increase resilience to climate events, pandemics, and other shocks? What does industrial policy look like in the 21st century? How can we use the sophistication of our capital markets to benefit development? And what role do the Bretton Woods institutions play in this new era? These are all questions that we need to ask ourselves as together we rethink the system to continue supporting the persistent goals of financial stability and poverty reduction. Which brings me to the second part of my speech, which is looking forward. Today, many middle and low income countries have lost market access due to the rising rates in developed markets. And it is true that this month a record $40 billion was raised by some of the stronger emerging markets, such as Mexico, Turkey's, and others, who took advantage of some slight improvements uh, in the early weeks of the year. But I think it's safe to say that they are the exception. Refinancing existing debt in current conditions remains extremely challenging, and many countries will experience increased debt distress particularly as debt service that was delayed during the pandemic now starts to fall due. The mechanisms and internationally accepted frameworks for a sovereign debt restructuring that were used in previous debt crises are no longer effective. 
We have seen delayed debt restructuring negotiations in the three common framework cases of Chad, Zambia, and Ethiopia. We see delays in providing relief to Sri Lanka. Ghana is just beginning to talk to its creditors, and others will surely follow. And remember, in those old days, a sovereign would experience debt distress, call in the IMF, go to the Paris Club, and things would unfold fairly efficiently. How and why doesn't it work that way now? The IMF, since it is funded through taxpayer money, has to ensure that its capital will be repaid. So before it lends money, it needs to have assurances that funds will not be used just to pay back other creditors. In the old days, it was easy to give the financing assurances. It was a phone call to the Paris Club. Everyone knew that it was within the club, even the commercial lending. But in today's world, there is no phone call that can be made. No one creditor group can assure that everyone else will participate. The heterogeneous creditor landscape means that we end in stalemate. The IMF does not get its assurances and the system currently fails. Vulnerable countries are well aware of these risks. They delay going to the IMF and try to find other ways to circumvent the system. And post-pandemic, they are coming together now in new political platforms, such as the V20 and the Bridgetown Initiative, to advocate for comprehensive reform of the international financial architecture, and in particular, for reform of the multilateral development banks. Many of these initiatives touch upon debt distress and vulnerability to climate change, as well as the broad issues of climate justice. Policymakers, bankers, investors, borrowers, and lenders, we all recognize that reform of the system is needed. Here are some brief ideas. First, the IMF. We first need to find a way to bring back some level of automaticity to the process, some early comfort to the IMF so that it can continue to lend and fulfill its mandate of ensuring stability. In a recent article in the Financial Times, I outlined four reforms. First, we need to automate debt service suspension on debt owed to G20 members. This would be like making some features of the DSSI somewhat permanent. Second, we need to enshrine early engagement of all creditors. The IMF can be more transparent earlier in their process with all creditors regarding its debt sustainability and analysis. Three, we need to introduce some sort of automatic stabilizers into bond and other debt documentation to ensure private creditor participation. This would be building upon the framework such as catastrophe bonds, GDP-linked bonds. One idea is that a staff-level approval of an IMF program could be such a trigger. And fourth, we should use the momentum around climate and nature to crowd in other actors who can be helpful. If we turn to the World Bank, the World Bank can continue providing capacity building and technical assistance, particularly around the domestic capital markets, but it should also be studying how to use its balance sheet to provide and guarantees and act as catalytic money to bring in private sector players. Features that de-risk transa transactions, guarantees, and other credit enhancements are important pieces of the puzzle 
that the World Bank could be providing. And the UN. The UN has a critical role to play through its various arms of UNDP, UNCTAD, the Rio Conventions, etc. Here it is about connecting the dots and breaking down the silos and, as you talk, bringing in the parties. The UNDP has been working with countries on their SDG frameworks and elsewhere in the system you have been setting climate and nature targets. These can be used for performance-linked instruments and the UN can play a key role in ensuring that targets are both credible and ambitious and the UN can help in the monitoring of that performance going forward. In summary, we can look to the past to find inspiration, how to use public money as collateral, guarantees or other credit enhancements, we can structure public support in such a way that brings in private creditors and investors, pension funds and others. Just as with the Brady Bond program, instruments can be designed to solve current problems and be catalytic to future market innovation. Debt for nature swaps, debt for health, debt for development, we can use performance-linked instruments to ensure outcomes. We can also build in sophisticated hedging instruments so that the currency risk is reduced. And we can support the development of carbon markets and natural capital accounting, which can lead to other cash flows for vulnerable sovereigns who are stewards of global public goods. It is all possible. We just need to challenge ourselves and others to think boldly and bravely for today's extraordinary global moment. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.